Well, thank you, Pastor Jacob. As Jacob mentioned, we are in a sermon series through the book of Revelation, seven-part series looking at the unveiling of God. You know, the Revelation is not primarily this dystopian picture of the future, of, of just the end of the world. Rather, as we discussed last week, it is a letter written to particular churches. And it was written using uh, prophetic apocalyptic languages, language to the, the use of symbols and images to awaken the imagination and the heart to the core message. And the core message is this, to a church in the midst of decline and crisis, renewal is possible when we see the beautiful rule and eventual return of Jesus Christ. That in a world dominated by persecution and pain and suffering, when Christians were wrestling with how to proceed, how to live, how do we, how do we have any hope in the midst of this chaos? Jesus gives a vision to this pastor, John, who writes this letter to these churches describing Jesus' beautiful rule and his eventual return. Revelation, the, the apocalypsis, it unveils for us the beauty of Jesus in the midst of brokenness. And so this morning, we continue in the letter, and we're going to look at the now turning to these seven churches. You know, Jacob read in verse 11 these churches, but it continues in verse 12. says, I turned to see whose voice was speaking to me. And when I did so, this is John writing, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was the one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man, this is language from, from the book of Daniel, which describes Jesus, the messianic figure, the one who will bring justice and, and goodness, shalom to, to the world. But the Son of Man, Jesus is standing amidst the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands, this is temple language. A lampstand, a golden lampstand, was placed in the Holy of Holies in the very heart of the temple, signifying, signifying the illuminating presence of Yahweh. On the lampstand were seven lights, and it was crafted out of gold, and it was crafted to look like a tree. It was symbolic of the tree of life from the garden. But in the same way God brought life God brought his presence in the garden. He was bringing life, bringing his presence amidst the temple and tabernacle. And do you see the beauty of what God is saying? That now the church has the presence of God. The church is the illuminating presence of God, bringing life into the world. But unfortunately, in this time, these lampstands, these the illuminating community of God, the presence of God, the tabernacle of God was experiencing decline. This is just a few decades after the resurrection of Jesus and already there's fighting. Already there's a toleration of idolatry. Already there's decline amidst the crisis and persecution from the Roman Empire. And John has a message straight from Jesus to these seven churches about how they can experience renewal. Now, each of, in chapters 2 and 3, there's a specific message to these churches. Now, it needs to be said that there were, there were more than seven churches in, the Asian, in Asia Minor, in Western Turkey. There were more than seven churches. There's Church of Colossae and a number of others. 
The reason they chose seven was seven, as we've mentioned, is the number of completion. It's a prominent number in the book of Revelation. And so these, this message to these seven churches, these were be, these, this was thought of to be a message for the church as a whole. And so rather than looking at each of these specific messages, we're going to take it as a whole. What do we learn as a community of faith about experiencing renewal? I want to make three observations against in the midst of the season of a pandemic and this crisis, the, the pressure of the pandemic that's brought, that we all experience, it's put pressure on our healthcare systems. It's put pressure on our economic lives and our, uh, the economies on a global scale. Millions of people have lost their jobs. Millions of people have had cuts in wages. It's put pressure on our relational health. Many of us experience isolation. Many of us experience division as there's continual debates about how best to respond. But many of us also experience emotional distress and turmoil. Over a million people, there have been over a million deaths worldwide, and the number is most likely significantly higher. In the United States alone, there have been over 220,000 deaths reported. That's 220,000 people, 220,000 families grieving. It has taken an enormous toll. These moments of crisis, they will change us. This pandemic is changing you and me, and it is changing us collectively. And on the other end of this crisis, we can be people of greater love, greater health, greater faith, or the crisis can lead the wounds, can change us for the worse. We can be people of greater cynicism, greater bitterness, a loss of faith. And so the challenge for the church then that John's writing for, and the challenge for us in our crisis moment today is are we open to renewal? Are we open to God using this crisis to bring greater health, greater love, uh, greater faith? Or are the wounds and pains of this crisis going lead to lead us to greater despair? How can we as a church experience renewal? I want to tease out three observations, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be brief. It's a great and beautiful text. I'm going to try to get to the heart of it here. So let's dive in. What can bring renewal to the church? First, repentance. The first practice and habit that can bring renewal is repentance. Repentance literally means to turn away from. And it's repeated. Five of the seven churches have this rebuke and call to repentance, to Ephesus. He says, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent to the church of Pergamum. It says, therefore repent. If not, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. I mean, do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the weight? This isn't the Jesus that many of us imagine. This call to repentance and him saying, I'm going to come against you. And then now looking at Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 19, all those I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Jesus is calling the church to repent, to turn away from their idolatry and sin. 
In some of the churches, he goes on to describe the nature of that idolatry. To Pergamum and Thyatira, he speaks specifically to the gods that they've put in his place. And I think there's, we really need to have this in mind when we think of repentance. We need to think, this is Jesus not just pointing the finger down at his people and putting more pressure on them. This is Jesus desiring to bring life. Because idolatry, anytime we put something in the place of God, anytime we put something in God's place and we seek to find our meaning and joy and life, we are putting our life, our meaning, our joy, our sense of well-being in something that cannot fulfill it. You know, we might not be tempted by some of the same idols they had related to Balaam and others, but we have our own idols today. A few that the church might cozy up to. One is the idol of, of American nationalism. We've talked about this recently with the election, but many in our country really worship the United States. We idolize it. We, we think that America is unique and special and different than anywhere in the world. <laughs> that America is the center of God's work. And therefore, we think Americans are unique to everyone else. And when we buy into that way of thinking, when we buy into that vision, what we are tempted to do is to idolize our country, to idolize our history, to idolize our symbols, and to put America in the place of God. And really, we end up worshiping country. Some churches perpetuate this idea. Rather than calling out this ideal, this idol, they reinforce American nationalism and allow the concept of America to be wedded to our faith. This is an idol. It is putting country in the place of God. Another idol that many struggle with is the idol of comfort and entitlement. The belief that I am owed. I am owed so much. I am owed comfort. I am owed the, the best cup of coffee and the newest iPhone and a job that's going to make me happy. We feel entitled. And as churches, we can reinforce this consumer mentality by creating spaces that appeal to our comforts. And then we, 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 we equate that to how we walk with God, that God's goal is to make you comfortable. That God is here to cater to you, to your every wants and desires. Some churches cater to the idol of comfort. Others in our culture, there's a idol of self. The idol of self and self-expression. And and the greatest injustice is anyone who come al will come along and say, you just can't be you. And so this idea of repent, I mean, this is, th this is a frontal assault on this idol. The idea that Jesus would come and say, you need to change, is offensive to our self-expression tendencies. And so some of the churches reinforce this. We present a way of walking with God, a Jesus that's just nice and gentle, and he's always calling out the sins of everyone else, never yours. But in reality, Jesus shows up and he says, you need to repent. These idols will not bring you life. But then also we can learn here 
the other side of the ditch. If one side of the ditch is minimizing sin and cozying up to idols, the other side is always calling out the sins of everyone else. You know, we need to see that Jesus opens up this letter where the church would have been preoccupied with the sins of Roman oppression. Jesus opens up and rather than critiquing Rome, he brings a rebuke on the church. It's tempting in some church circles to be preoccupied with the sins of the world and to think the problems are all out there and miss, miss the ways God wants to bring fresh life through repentance to our own soul. As a church, we always need to be a humble people, a people that, that don't amplify the sins of others and minimize our own but we actually do the opposite. We, we desire to be more loving, more gracious, more kind to others, and a willingness, a courage to have the humility to repent of our own misdoings. Renewal begins with repentance, a turning, and then a turning back, a turning toward Jesus. How do we experience renewal? We repent and we return to the, a genuine love for Jesus. The first church he writes to is Ephesus, and he puts it this way. He describes their good works in chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus says, I know, Jesus knows, he sees, I know your works as well as your labor and steadfast endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You see this? Jesus is saying, look, I know your works, and I know you, you hate evil. You have even put it to the test. You have even put to the test those who refer to themselves as apostles, but are not. There were some in the church who claimed apostolic authority, claiming to be teachers of the gospel, but they weren't. And so they didn't listen to these false teachers. And he continues, And have discovered that they are false. In verse 3, I am also aware that you have persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of my name, and have not grown weary. Do you... This is amazing. John Stott, one pastor, summarized the church of Ephesus. He said, they're energetic in their servant service, patient in their suffering, orthodox in their faith. They had the right doctrinal statement. And they're applying it. They're living it. They're even suffering. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly be the problem? In verse 4, Jesus says, But I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. You see, Jesus, he knows, he sees. He sees through all the performance. He sees through the behavior. He sees through the doctrinal statements. He sees through all the external acts. He sees the heart. I'm reminded of the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus calls out hypocrites, people who are giving publicly so everyone can see, people praying publicly so everyone can see, people fasting and telling everyone about it because their faith was merely a performance, putting on a show. And she said, look, God sees your heart. It's not about, it's not about all that's happening on the externals. It's not about what everyone sees. It's about what's going on right here. You see, you can have the right doctrinal statement and the right actions, but if it's not integrating into your emotional heart center, eventually that's going to come out. Jesus sees through the superficial actions. You know, he puts it this way to, the, to another church, Sardis, in chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus says, I know your deeds, 
that you have a reputation that you are alive. You're saying, look, I know the deeds. Everyone thinks you're alive. Everyone thinks you have the right doctrinal statement, the right behavior. You're, you're doing it right. That's what everyone thinks. But in reality, you are dead. In verse 2, he says, Wake up then and strengthen what remains that was about to die. Jesus is saying, look, I see through the facade. I know you're dead. Wake up. Wake up. It's not too late. You know, when we think about this, why do many of us resort to just putting on the show? And in fact, why do many of us depart from our first love of Jesus? You know, I think for the same reason we depart from other things that we love. Whether it's people or places that brought meaning and joy in our life. For me growing up, I loved going to the beach. Vacation with the family, it was a it was a place of beauty, a place of laughter, a place of sun and warmth and swimming and fun. And I loved everything about it. I love I love just I love hearing the ocean. I loved looking and sitting and just watching. And all, growing up, even into my teenage years, I just loved the beach. And then my family moved to South Florida. And eventual and, and when we first moved there, I still loved it. I'd make time, I'd drive to the beach, I'd go, I'd read, I'd be there, I'd listen, I'd just take it all in and think, oh, I can't, I can't believe it. This is the life. But you know, as time moved on, the shine and, and good positive vibes of the beach kind of gave way. They lost their appeal. And before long, I stopped going to the beach because rather than it just being this place of immense beauty, it became this place of just getting sand and having to navigate through the traffic and, and other people in the crowds. And it just lost its appeal slowly over time. Can you relate to that? Maybe you at one point loved hiking, loved the mountains, and then maybe you lived there for some time. And, and the great awe and wonder of this place just becomes normalized. Or maybe it's a relationship, a person who you at once loved and just being around them just made you giddy and then you, maybe you married them and then oh, it's just normal. Maybe you feel it in your relationship with Jesus Christ. At one point you felt this awe, this wow, that I get forgiveness, that I can have an eternity through Jesus, this, this just speechlessness to the grandeur of what He offers. And, but then over time, just like that beach, just like those mountains, just like that relationship, it just, we get a little bored. The significance wanes. For many, that resembles much of how we, we eventually walk away in our faith. It's not a moment when we think, oh, I, I'm not sure if I love Jesus. It's just a gradual growing apart. If we want to experience renewal, we need to return to this genuine love for Jesus. Now, I think it's important to say that a return to a genuine love in Jesus is not returning to the same love we felt when we first embraced Him in our life. It's not a return to just this innocent, almost naivete love. I think of a relationship, a loving relationship, a marriage. You know, if you're entering into marriage, if you're dating someone, or maybe you're engaged, or maybe you're newlyweds, if your expectation is that that love you have for the other person is going to be the same feeling you have for the rest of your life, 
I'm sorry to break it to you, but that, that won't be the case. <laughs> just like that beach, just like that mountains, just like that job you at once loved that then kind of gets normalized, that relationship will too. Now, in that normalization, if the expectation is you'll have the same kind of puppy dog love, you're going to be disappointed. But what can happen is as you walk through life together, the trials, the boring days, the silence of a long car trip, the moments of great celebration, the moments of great struggle, over time that love can mature. And rather than being this just innocent love that's naive to the problems of life. It's a mature love. And this is the invitation. This is the love that God desires. And, and how do we know? It, the church in Laodicea, look at how it puts it. In Revelation 3, verse 20, you know, this is following, Jesus says to the church, he says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. Now this passage is often misinterpreted. It just says, I would that you were not hot nor cold, or I would that you were hot or cold and not lukewarm, thus, thus I'll spit you out of my mouth. He's not saying, I wish that you were either on fire for Jesus or just didn't care. But you're kind of in the middle, so that's no good. No, in, the, in their context, hot water and cold water were both useful. They both brought drinking and medicinal purposes. Lukewarm, stagnant water just brought sickness. No one wants water that's been stagnant and lukewarm. Jesus is saying, look, I want you to integrate your life. I want you to believe this and be join me in the work of, of bringing this faith into life. But then he closes it out with this invitation in verse 20. He's saying, listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. This is a beautiful, Jesus is saying, look, I am pursuing, I desire genuine love and relationship. In fact, this verse even connects to the Song of Solomon, which is the story of poetry about a husband and life's love. God's saying, Jesus loves us on that level. He desires presence, desires a meal. And that is how our love returns. Not by going back to just kind of a simplistic love. It's actually a mature love that brings the hurts, brings the pains, brings the dreams and struggles, brings it all into our walk, into our prayer, into communion with God. We experience renewal by repenting and returning to a genuine love for Jesus. And lastly, by remaining faithful. Church, we experience renewal through repentance, through returning to loving Jesus, and by remaining faithful. Two of the churches did not receive a rebuke by Jesus, the church of Philadelphia and the church of Smyrna. Look at how Jesus speaks to Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, I know the distress you are suffering. And now he's going to go on to describe it. He says, you're in your poverty but you are rich. Jesus is saying, look, one distress is you are materially poor. Two, I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jew and are really and really are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You know, we can, we can discern in the text that there are some Jews in their community who are criticizing the Christians. They're slandering them. And most likely they're slandering them because they're poor 
and because they probably did not have any place of meeting. You can imagine Jews, they were proud of their building, proud of their meeting place, and they're looking at Christians, and they're basically saying, look, God's not with you. God's not with you. You don't even, you don't have your own facility. You're, you, God's not blessing this. You're poor. They're slandering them. And Jesus continues, verse 10, Do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. He's saying it's going to get worse. In fact, they're going to be thrown in prison. But then he closes with this. He says, Remain faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown that is life itself. Jesus is saying, look, I know others are calling you poor. I know you're being slandered and mocked by people who claim faith in me. And I know you're going to be thrown in prison. Even then, in the great moment of pain, when it's tempting to leave, because it always is. You know, when we, no one wants pain, right? We don't want pain, right? That, that, that's actually a problem. When, when you enjoy pain, that's, that's not good. <laughs> that's a problem. When we experience pain, we want, we want out. When you have pain in marriage, Right? There, there's, a, there's a temptation to leave. When you have pain in a friendship, a temptation to move on. Well, this, this friendship, at one point it was fun and easy. Now, you know what? Man, it's political season. And seeing your views, I don't know. I might want out. <laughs> Many of us feel pain in a job. At one point we were excited. We applied for the job. It loses its appeal. And we're ready to move on. We experience pain in church. Now, at one point, we loved the church, and then we discovered the people there, they sin. And the pastor's not perfect, and the music isn't perfect, and all the things, and, and, and now we want change. We experience with our walk with God. At one point, it was beautiful and easy, and we lived in awe, but then pain and trial and struggle enters in. In those moments, let's remain not saying there's not a time for change. You know, in some relationships, some marriages that are abusive, there needs to be change. Some friendships that are not, not good, not healthy, there is a, a time for establishing boundaries and change. Some jobs, right? some churches, like, there is a time for change. But anytime there's pain, we want to opt out, we want to run. If that's how we approach life, we will be running our entire life and we will remain in nothing. In the midst of trials, in the midst of pain, in the midst of a pandemic where it's tempting to cut and run, Jesus is inviting us to remain faithful. And friends, that remaining is often the place of renewal. As we dig our roots deep, as we dig deep roots in Jesus, deep roots in the gospel, deep roots of faith that allow us to grow to be a tree to weather the storm. We will never dig the roots. We will never grow in maturity. We will never feel the awakening of that, of that genuine mature love. We will never have the humility and courage to repent if we're not willing to remain. I want to invite us in this season to be open to renewal. You know, the church in our country is experiencing decline. People are 
leaving. People are leaving their faith. People are leaving churches. Many are wrestling. May we be a church not focused on everything out here, but may we be a church who's open to the renewing, reviving work of God. And may we do it by being people who repent, who prioritize loving Jesus, not just knowing and studying about Him, but loving Him. And may we be a people who remain faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for being a God who is faithful even when we are faithless. Thank you for offering the gospel, the good news, that even when our actions don't match our heart, even when we, when we are dominated by doubt, because we look to your Son, you call us your children, and you love us with an eternal love, a love that will one day bring a crown of life. Thank you for being a good and loving and gracious and a faithful God. Empower us by your Spirit to be people who repent, who return to you, and remain faithful in the midst of crisis. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.